This is an ABC podcast. This is the WA Country Hour with Belinda Varischetti on ABC Radio WA. Well, hello there. How are you today? Good to have you along. Uh, this hour, WA mining giant Rio Tinto says the sale of its Gascoigne salt mine will lead to an expansion of its Pilbara operations. We'll talk more about that shortly here on the Country Hour. A little later in the hour after the headlines and a look at the weather around the state, we'll head to the Kimberley where that tropical low that's just swirling around the eastern edge of that region of WA is bringing some very welcome rains for those stations lucky enough to be under one of those thunderstorms. And, of course, we'll go into detail about that tropical low that's swirling around that top end of the country with a cross to the Bureau of Meteorology. Six past 12 here on the Country Hour. Well, another big offering at wool sales across Sydney, Melbourne and Fremantle this week. It's a very similar situation to last week's sale where close to 51,000 bales were on offer, which was the largest opening sale in three years and the largest sale in eight months. Maddie Gallagher is the East Gippsland District Wool Manager with Elders. She's hopeful the upcoming Lunar New Year celebrations will increase demand for all the wool that's on offer this week. 55,660 bales, which will put pressure on the market. These are mostly crossbred bales. But one thing we have in our favour is shipping deadlines for the Chinese New Year looming. So basically things need to be brought this week to make it before Chinese New Year, which is the 10th of Feb. Good wool should be okay this week, but could be a bit tough for any of the um, off-sorts types of wool. Aside from the large offering at sales this week, there are other international issues creating uncertainty for the wool market. There's concern about the Chinese economy, a potential German recession, the US election and conflicts in Ukraine, Israel and Gaza. There are also concerns around the Red Sea region, including the Suez Canal shipping route. A ballistic missile fired by Houthi rebels has hit a US-owned ship just off the coast of Yemen in the latest attack on commercial vessels in the region. The Houthi attacks, which come amid Israel's war with Hamas in the Gaza Strip, have disrupted global shipping in a crucial corridor. Elders Wool Manager Emma Turner says the situation is adding considerable costs for those shipping containers through the region, with many forced to take longer alternative routes. That's adding around 15 days to a journey time at the moment, um, also adding around $4,500 to $5,000 extra cost per container when it comes to freight. So there's still quite a few global issues going on at the moment. And until that starts to settle down and economy stabilise, it's a bit hard to predict an upturn anytime reasonably soon, that's for sure. Well, manager with Elders, Emma Turner. 8 past 12. Josh Lamb is the trading manager with Endeavour Wool Exports, the second largest exporter of Australian wool. He says this is the first conflict in the Red Sea region that's having a direct impact on the wool industry, where shipping lines are having to take those alternative routes to get to market. Josh, what's your level of concern about the situation in this region where Houthis have been attacking cargo ships since November? Um, yeah, look, the impact it's having on the Australian wool market's not 
it's significant, but it's not actually affecting the market. What we're having to do at the moment is shipping lines have decided to divert away from that route and they're now going around the Horn of Africa instead. So it's added another sort of 10 to 20 days transit time for wool going from Australia to Europe. And it's also added another, um, depending on shipping lines, but between 30 and 50% more cost per container. Well, we just heard from Emma Turner from Elders who was saying it's adding an additional four and a half to $5,000 per container. Does that, do those figures add up to what you're experiencing? Uh, the, the highest we've been charged is around 1500 US. So that'd be sort of two and a half thousand Aussie, I guess. Yeah. Um, the problem with that is it's on cargo that had already shipped and, you know, we've been paid by clients for it, of course. So we're having to absorb that charge already. Um, future shipments over the next, you know, sort of from the last few weeks onwards of wool that we haven't actually cleared at this end yet, you know, we'll be able to recoup that cost, but um, from the end user, but ultimately, you know, it, it's got to be paid. But yeah, well, I haven't seen charges that high. We're, we're looking at around four to 5,000 per container to Europe at the moment as it is, and we're having to add another sort of two to two and a half thousand on top of that. Yeah, okay. So at the moment, as you say, you know, the companies, the exporters themselves are absorbing a lot of the costs currently, but, you know, if this continues, I mean, ultimately, doesn't the wool grower pay? Oh, of course they do. Yeah, look, ultimately they do pay. I mean, in the short term, we absorb those costs because um, we can't pass them back to the client because the wool's already been paid for and, sh- and shipped. But, you know, all the way through the chain, whether you're talking sea freight or local transport costs in Australia or the or the post-sale charge that, that buyers are, uh, are charged by brokers, it all comes back to the price that's paid in the sale room to the wool grower. And, I mean, this isn't the first conflict in this region uh, I mean, it's that kind of region, isn't it? But how does this yeah. one compare to conflicts in previous years as far as an impact on, on industry? Look, we haven't really had any impact directly on the wool industry, you know, in the last sort of 20 years that I can think of. This is the first one that's actually caused a problem where we've had to actually, um, or shipping lines have had to, to, to seek an alternate route. It's, it's the first sort of significant problem that's come back to our industry specifically. I mean, obviously... 12 or 18 months ago, we had a vessel that was um, uh, that, that was stuck on a sandbar there. I mean, that caused all sorts of trouble as well. But as far as conflicts go, yeah, this is the first one that's directly affected us. How important is this shipping route for the wool industry? Well, it, it comes down to time. So if you're adding another two to three weeks in transit time, then money's tied up longer. Therefore, it takes, you know, it takes longer for us to get our money back and, and go back into the sale room with it. Probably the only saving grace... Um, Europe's been relatively quiet the last five to six months. So, you know, we'd normally be probably shipping a bit more wool there at this time of year than we are now. So that, that sort of helped us a little bit. But, um, but yeah, it just slows money down. It grinds things down. Of course, there's more cost involved. And as you just mentioned, it, it comes back to the price in the sale room. So, you know, it does take a bit of money off wool growers. As far as planning for the future then or the next few months or for the rest of this year, I mean, it's very difficult to know how long these sort of situations are going to hang around and linger and have that flow and effect to industry. How do you mm. prepare when there's a situation like this? Uh, once we know what's happening like we do now, I mean, it was a bit hard to plan for all the already shippers, I mentioned, but now that we know that that's coming, we, we just have to allow a bit more time. So you stick to that alternative route? Is that yeah. the plan at this well, stage? It, yeah, absolutely. It's not really up to us. It's up to the shipping lines that, that exporters engage with. It's really up to them what they do. And obviously, they don't want to put 
their vessels or, or their staff in danger. So they'll ship that way as long as they have to. I imagine this is not a problem that will be solved quickly, but I'm not an expert in international politics, but it looks like something that will be around for a while. There are still some ships going through that Red Sea area, the Suez Canal area. So is it, does insurance increase or are there higher costs associated with those ships who continue to use that route? Yeah, there is. So we, the vessels that are still going through there have like a danger tax put on them by the shipping lines um, and that's passed back to whoever's shipping cargo on them. And it's the same for the vessels that are going the other way now that are avoiding the area because they've got a longer a longer transit time because there's more costs and that's coming back to us as well. So, so you know, either way, there's a, there's a higher charge. Josh Lamb, good to get your thoughts on that international issue that's um, developing at the moment. Uh, let's take a look now at sales this week in Sydney, Melbourne and Fremantle, a, a really big offering this week too, similar to last week's offering. I think it's around about, is it 55,000 bales or so yeah, for this just, week? Yeah. yeah. What are your yep. thoughts with the, the, that amount of wool going onto the market this week? Um, there's a few green shoots starting to appear in the local market or the local economy in China, which is which is encouraging. The market's opened a little bit softer this morning. It just started about half an hour ago. So um, look, quantity's not a huge issue at the moment because we've seen markets over the last five to six months, even on traditionally small offering weeks, the market still managed to be cheaper and it's it's gotten dear on bigger weeks as it did going into the Christmas recess. So we, we can certainly absorb the quantity, but we, we would like to see a little bit more demand behind that to, to give us a chance to sort of push the market along a bit. And what are the sort of signals coming from China then? It's our number one market. It has been for a very long time now. Yeah. Uh, how are you reading the play there? Um, it seems to, the last four or five months, it's definitely getting a clearer picture there. In the last six weeks, you know, just talking to clients there and agents, there's a bit more positivity about consumer spending there. Certainly nowhere near pre-COVID and nowhere near where we'd like it to be. They've also had a very long autumn there, which which hasn't helped. The sweater market in China is massive um, for retail there and it's massive for the wool market here. And that, that certainly hasn't kicked on like it should have with, with, with some sort of more severe colder winter weather. So that, that long autumn's definitely affected that part of the supply chain too. And we haven't seen that pull through we'd like to see. But, but look, we, we're hearing things are improving and they're certainly looking a lot more optimistic for this year, particularly the longer this year goes on. But, you know, it's not being reflected in the market this week, of course, but sort of trying to take a longer term view of it. And what about other opportunities? I mean, China's, there's a lot of daylight between China's position uh, as the number one destination for our wool and, yeah. and the next players. But are there any anything interesting uh, for this year that you see in terms of other markets opening up? Oh, Ch- China's more or less the only game in town at the moment. What we do need is the secondary markets, particularly in India and then, of course, Europe after that, in Italy in particular and the Czech Republic, to, to sort of get back to where more traditional quantities each week that they'd be buying. Um, since the middle of last year, 2023, those secondary markets have definitely softened. And, and China, you know, thank God they are there, I guess, to, to buy the volume they're buying. But unless we get those secondary markets firing in the sale room, then it's a bit hard to sort of keep China up to the level, I guess, when, when they're the only game in town. So, look, I, I think as the longer this year goes on, the, the better economies around the world get and the clearer the picture is, barring a few conflicts around the world, of course. But um, I, I think the better the market will be and the better those secondary markets should start to perform. And what does that mean for prices then? You said, uh, you know, sales have opened already uh, today um, and a little softer 
But um, that's today and this week. But yeah. what do you see longer term this year? The old crystal ball's been cracked and broken a few times the last couple of years. But it's, uh, I'm fairly optimistic for the second half of this calendar year. Just talking to European clients, obviously what I mentioned with China earlier, things are slowly improving there, but it's a grind. It certainly looks clear in the second half of the year. So you'd hope for a higher market. You know, the next couple of weeks might be a little bit challenging. China going to their the traditional spring festival at the end of the month. We always like to see them come out of that with a bit of renewed optimism. So hopefully that's the case this year in sort of mid-Feb. We get these other markets going in behind them, then, you know, we might we might sort of have a wet sail for the end of the season. But I, I think realistically any sort of sustained price rises that, that we can um, maintain or hang on to really are probably coming in the second half of this year. Josh, really good to get your thoughts. Thank you so much. Thanks, Belinda. Josh Lamb, he is the trading manager with Endeavour Wool Exports. 17 past 12. This is the Country Hour with Belinda Varischetti on ABC Local Radio WA. And some mining and resources news between now and the news headlines at half past 12. WA mining giant Rio Tinto says the sale of its gas coin salt mine will lead to an expansion of its Pilbara operations. Rio Tinto's Dampier Salt announced this morning it had agreed to the sale of its Carnarvon salt mine, Lake McLeod. Private company Leichhardt Industrial Group will buy the operation for $375 million. Rio Tinto's head of port, rail and core services, Richard Cohen, says the sale will benefit the local community. This is good for us. It will allow us to focus on optimising our two larger sites that are closer to our Rio Tinto business. We also think this is really good for the Lake McLeod operations uh, and Leichhardt can grow and build the operation that that has been there for a long time. Can you touch a little bit more on on how it could be good for the Leichhardt operations in, in that area near Carnarvon? Look, the, um, the Lake McLeod operation is a really important and valuable salt business. We, we operate the three sites as an integrated business and so don't always maximise the underlying potential of that site. I think an agile, small producer focused on doing the best for just one site could well see some development and some extension in that business. And so I think ultimately really good, not only for the business, but for the community of Carnarvon. Yeah, what kind of impact do you think this could have on that Gascoigne community? Look, I think we, we're very conscious of the underlying part that Lake McLeod plays in the Carnarvon community. It is the biggest employer. Uh, we're very pleased with the values of the Leichhardt business. They have committed to retaining all employees, um, so that provides certainty. They're, they're on site with us at the moment, talking to both employees and local stakeholders. And I think already we can feel a real commitment, not only to the business, but the local area which was very important in any consideration we had. I spoke this morning with Paul Dixon from the Carnarvon Chamber of Commerce. He wasn't available for an interview because he's in Canada at the moment, but he did say he appreciated that the Chamber received a call from Rio Tinto to uh, make the Chamber aware of the sale. Um, He was quite hopeful that there wouldn't be, uh, you know, the sale wouldn't impinge on the town at all. Um, And he also mentioned that that Rio has a sort of like-for-like condition or something along those lines where essentially... Leichhardt would have had to agree to some sort of continuation of the employment and and that kind of thing. Are you able to give any more detail about um, what that could look like? Uh, No, I think think his summary is good. Leichhardt, as I mentioned, had committed to retaining all of the workforce, which was really important. 
and they've, com they've committed to retaining the workforce on essentially similar terms to they're on now. So we wanted to provide certainty for our employees. We wanted to ensure there was certainty for the community. Uh, and I think the agreement with Rich with Leichhardt has gone a long way to doing that. And that's certainly the, the sentiment we're getting in the early communications we're having on site at the moment. On the country, are you hearing from Rio Tinto's Richard Cohen? And we're talking about the agreement for uh, Dampier Salt, Rio Tinto's Dampier Salt, to sell its Carnarvon Lake McLeod operation to Leichhardt. Richard, you mentioned that uh, you're able to now focus on the Port Headland and the Dampier, Dampier Salt operations, and, and you referenced enhancing efficiencies. What do you mean by that? Look, the, uh, the other two sites are our largest two sites. We will, and they're in very close proximity to the rest of the Rio Tinto business in iron ore. We can harness the synergies not only between those two sites, but also with the rest of the group. And we will look to maximise efficiencies and hence production out of those two sites to, to sustain and grow the business over time. Does that mean you haven't been quite as efficient as you could have been for the last few years and decades? I think it means we've been running a three-site business and you have to run a three-site business differently to what we will run a two-site business. And with a two-site business, we will be very focused on, on stretching and growing uh, to make sure we can maintain our sales requirements into the market. Can we expect any changes locally in, in Port Hedland or Dampier to uh, workforce or operations there? And no, no significant changes. We'll be looking for those efficiencies that we can then eke out of the operations uh, to ensure we see sustained performance and, and some growth. But no, no material changes. We're certainly not. Uh, we have no plans to, to sell any other asset in our portfolio in the salt business. How is the salt market currently? I know you and I have spoken off air, you know, in, in recent years about how demand had been quite strong for salt. Is that still the case? How's it going? Yeah, look, the, the salt market had a very strong year in 2023. Demand demand was good. I think with, as with, with all commodities, we'll see some variability and we'll see some changes and some challenges over time. But the underpinning fundamentals of the salt business remain very strong. Uh, salt is an important part of the world's ambitions to decarbonise and we think that will sustain demand for salt for a long time to come. Richard Cohen is the Managing Director of Port, Rail and Core Services for Rio Tinto. He was speaking to Michelle Stanley about its agreement to sell the Lake McLeod salt mine north of Carnarvon. It'll sell to private company Leichhardt for $375 million dollars. Leichhardt has another salt prospect just south of Caratha, which it expects to announce a final investment decision for next year. Leichhardt declined an interview with the Country Hour but says it will retain all Lake McLeod employees. 24 past 12. A commodity analyst says all eyes should now be on the future of BHP's nickel operation after the closure of another mine on the state's south coast. About 180 workers will lose their jobs at First Quantum Minerals Ravensthorpe Nickel Mine. The company announced that due to falling prices, it'll su suspend operations there for three years but continue to produce nickel from stockpiles in the short term. And last week, Panoramic Resources announced the loss of 140 jobs from its Savannah Mine in the East Kimberley, also due to the weak nickel market. Commodity analyst Tim Treadgold says the Ravensthorpe closure hasn't come as a surprise. 
in a word, predictable. Mm. Uh, the nickel price has been in free fall now for more than a year. It's actually getting up close to half what it was at this time last year, which was about $30,000 US a tonne. It's now down to 16000 US a tonne. And high-cost producers like Ravensthorpe can't survive in those conditions. Is there a concern then, and we have already seen this up in the Kimberley, but that other companies may follow suit? Yes, I think uh, absolutely. And the big one to watch is what's BHP going to do? Uh, It's been a reluctant uh, investor in nickel since it took over Western Mining Corporation back in 2005. It's tried several times to sell Nickel West uh, each time it either can't find a buyer or a new use for nickel pops up, which in this case is batteries and electric vehicles. And then the uh, ground is ripped away from under them and BHP is looking very um, wobbly at the moment as far as nickel is concerned. And that is the big one for WA because that company employs 2,500 people. Commodity analyst Tim Treadgold speaking to Jackie Lynch about the nickel market and the subsequent closure of the Ravensthorpe nickel mine on the south coast 180 jobs will be lost at that site. Reporter Hayden Smith has been in the area speaking with the locals today. Hayden, how's the community responding to the news? Here in Ravensthorpe and Hopeton today, there's a sense of disappointment among locals, um, but they're not entirely surprised as well. Many of them were keeping an eye on the nickel price in recent weeks and months. Of course, the mine did cease operations in 2009, then again in 2017, so it's a little bit of a case of deja vu, unfortunately. Um, But as one farmer and and local uh, spokesperson did tell me that this is a resilient community um, and they they will bounce back. Um, However, it is certainly uh, not a good way for them to start 2024. Uh, For now, I guess they're just waiting on further news from the company around more specific information around the job losses um, and what exactly uh, this looks like moving forward. Hayden, thank you for that update. Reporter Hayden Smith in Hopeton. 27 past 12. We're sticking with resources because a gas industry analyst says the green light for construction of a major project off northern Australia is a significant decision for the industry. Yesterday, Santos was given approval to continue construction on a gas pipeline from its Barossa gas field in the Timor Sea to Darwin. A group of Tiwi Island traditional owners had been challenging the approvals process for that pipeline, but the federal court found Santos had no case to answer and the pipeline could be built in a route past Bathurst Island. This is a big win for Santos, which has been beset by delays to the project. Rick Wilkinson is a gas industry analyst. He says other producers will have been watching this case closely. Well, it's very significant, not just for Santos, but for the industry in general. Uh, I do think it reaffirmed, I think, two key principles. Firstly, that you know, absolutely we must consult with traditional owners. Uh, major projects need to do that. And secondly, that no one is above, above the law. So... It was good to see that those uh, principles were upheld in the case. What it meant for Santos, of course, is that um, they're able to now move on with their project and uh, uh, start to um, complete the drilling and installation of the pipeline. The gas industry lobby says that Australia's approvals process for projects like the Barossa need to be reformed. What do you think the federal court's decision says about that and does, does it back that up? 
Well, it certainly does. Um, but there's two things going on here. Firstly, uh, there is the outcome after going through all the litigation and the various court processes to finally get an answer. So there's no doubt that that would uh, bring a lot of relief to, to Santos to, to get an answer and the project back on, on deck. What it hasn't done is address the fundamental problem of you know, what is the right way to go about consultation, uh, what exactly needs to be done and clarity about that. So the, those particular issues were not solved uh, with the uh, Santos ruling. Uh, so those things are still uncertain, uh, undetermined and really raised doubt on anybody who wants to move forward with a major project in Australia. Yeah, so just how closely were other oil and gas operators watching this case? Well, they would have been watching very closely. We've already seen the first instance of uh, litigation impacting um, projects. Uh, this happened with the Scarborough project in Western Australia where uh, a single individual uh, raised an issue regarding seismic activity which was needed to help map the subsea um, subsurface reservoirs of, of gas that were needed for the Scarborough project. So there is no question that the track record to date is uh, very litigious, um, that uh, environmentalists and some traditional owners have chosen that path. And what that does is right, put real question marks over uh, the timelines that you've got on your projects, um, the certainty, and just the validity of the permits that you get from the government. Uh, uh, Sandos had um, uh, the permits necessary to proceed and then actually started drilling the well before it came to a halt. All of this adds to the uncertainty. All of this adds to the timeline of projects. And what does that mean? It means it increases the cost of the projects. It increases the... Um, the uncertainty that needs to be allowed for before a project will go ahead it means less projects or a higher hurdle for projects to go ahead before um, before they can be implemented in Australia, and and that's a that's a, a serious indictment on Australia because we normally were seen as a country where uh, large projects were well well looked after, where large projects could proceed under a, a well known. Uh, regulatory framework and you could be reasonably certain of, of the outcomes once you've got the required approvals. Uh, the question at the moment is that is that still the case in Australia and the question mark is maybe not. Rick Wilkinson is the CEO of Energy Quest. He was speaking to Dan Fitzgerald about yesterday's federal court decision to allow Santos to build a pipeline past the Tiwi Islands for its Barossa gas project. And the Australasian Centre for Corporate Responsibility has estimated regulatory delays could have cost the Barossa project $800 million. 28 to 1, Helen Kaur in the studio. What's happening in the news, Helen? Good afternoon, Belinda. In the headlines, a 36-year-old man has been charged after he allegedly sexually assaulted a woman in a public bathroom in WA's Wheat Belt a decade ago. Police say a woman in her 30s entered the female bathroom at a Durian Bay hotel in 2014 when the accused followed her in and assaulted her. The man is due to face the Perth Magistrates Court next month, charged with sexual penetration without consent. A coronial inquest into the death of 22-year-old Jackson Kinane has 
heard there's a lack of psychiatrists at Casuarina Prison. Jackson was found dead in the Swan River after absconding from a mental health ward at St John of God Midland Hospital in October 2020. In the months before, he was transferred several times between custody in Casuarina Prison and involuntary admission at the Franklin Centre. And a mining analyst says it's not a surprise Ravensthorpe Nickel Operations on WA South Coast will suspend mining for three years amid weak nickel prices. Canada's first quantum minerals announced the changes yesterday and it means roughly 180 people will lose their jobs. The company says it will continue to produce nickel from all stockpiles. More news coming up at 1. Thank you, Helen. 27 to 1. You're part of the Country Hour with Belinda Varischetti on ABC Local Radio WA. Earlier in the hour, catching up with Josh Lamb. He is the trading manager with Endeavour Wool Exports, the second largest exporter of Australian wool. And he was telling you that the first, this is the first conflict in the Red Sea region that is having a direct impact on the wool industry, uh, where those shipping lines are now having to take alternative routes to get to market. So adding time, but of course also adding money to that journey. On the text from Matt, it says, uh, Albo was asked to send military vessels to assist in protecting shipping freight routes in the Red Sea, but all he sent was a few personnel. A pretty poor contribution when our freight goes through there. Thank you for, Matt, for that, Matt. Um, just an update on that story. Anthony Albanese does say that the US administration respects his decision not to send a warship to the Middle East despite an American request. And the government has confirmed that Navy personnel will be deployed to the Red Sea instead of a warship uh, requested by Australia's closest ally. Uh, text through with your thoughts too, 0448 922604 if you'd like to have your say. Between now and the news at one, it's off to Muche for the results of the sheep market. And as you're wrapping up your uh, summer holiday trip around Australia, uh, just a few handy hints about where you can stay if you've got a caravan on the back. And calling into a truck stop is not an option. So you do need to be aware of that and plan your trip accordingly. We'll get all the rules and regulations about those stops shortly here on the Country Hour. First, though, it is off to the Bureau of Meteorology, Angeline Prasad, with you this afternoon. And, Angeline, let's start in the north of the state, taking a look at this tropical low, which has brought some rain to right up the top in that sort of um, East Kimberley part and some nice falls of rain for the stations that really need it there. Where is that low now and what can we expect of it over the next few days? Good afternoon, Belinda. Yes, so the, the tropical low is set, sitting well inland in the Northern Territory at the moment, so in the Gregory District uh, to the east of the WANT border. And we've heard that the Victoria River Highway that uh, extends into or across the border has been shut uh, simply because of the heavy rains that NT is experiencing in that region. The tropical low itself uh, is expected to uh, remain in the Northern Territory for the next few days. As a result of that, we'll continue to see more scattered showers and thunderstorms across uh, much of the Kimberley, especially through central and eastern Kimberley. However, the heavier falls will be near that WANT border. So places like Kananara, Waman uh, will likely see 
20 to 40 millimeters of rain uh, daily, and there could be isolated heavier falls, uh, 40 to 70 millimeters, uh, especially if we see more frequent thunderstorm activity over the next few days. The longer-term outlook is uncertain where this tropical low may head. Uh, one of the sort of uh, scenarios that looks like may pan out over the weekend is it may move into the Kimberley, so take more of a westerly track and move into the Kimberley. So from most likely from Saturday night, we'll see those heavier falls that are currently happening near the WANT border extend more westwards, so Halls Creek um, all the way to Fitzroy, uh, river crossing may start to see those heavier uh, falls um, the 20 to 50 millimeters and isolated falls 50 to 100 millimeters um, so that's the medium term outlook the most likely scenario is it will move uh, into into the Kimberley uh, most likely later this weekend the longer term outlook is, is quite uncertain at this stage uh, it could slowly move west across the Kimberley next week or it could return back do a curve and return back into into the northern territory or do a quick move uh, and uh, uh, westwards and move into into the Indian Ocean. Um, so a, a few scenarios that we're looking at. The important thing to remember is with those heavier falls, we're predicting flash flooding is a possibility on the on the WANT border over the next few days. Um, and if that system does become slow moving uh, across the Kimberley um, next week, then there's that risk that it might it will affect a river a river. So we could see some riverine rises as well. And there's a possibility of, uh, I mean, I know the East Kimberley is getting some rain now, but it looks like if um, one of those, I don't know, possibilities that you've just gone through, Angie, could actually even get over to the West Kimberley. Is that what you're saying? Yes. Yeah. Yes. So that is um, one of the possibilities. Um, as with any tropical lows, there's usually large uncertainties, especially in the mid to longer term. In the short term, at least until Friday, it looks like it'll stay over the NT, so maintain those heavier falls just over the uh, closer to the WANT border. But yes, um, there is that likelihood, uh, one of the scenarios, that it could move to the West Kimberley, so bring some welcome rain uh, to the Southwest Kimberley, which hasn't seen much rain uh, this, uh, this wet season, unfortunately. Yeah, they're pretty desperate in parts of uh, that region. Now, uh, for more information then on the northern and eastern parts of Western Australia. What have you got? So we have got a trough of low pressure that's extending across the Gascoigne. And uh, so that has already started to generate uh, showers and thunderstorms, especially across the eastern parts of the Gascoigne, sort of around uh, uh, sort of uh, Mount Magnet and sort of uh, the Mikathara Way. And it's also extending into the Pilbara. So today we'll again see large areas of the Pilbara, especially central and eastern Pilbara, the inland parts of the Gascoigne, much of the gold fields in the interior. Um, see isolated shower and thunderstorm activity. In terms of rainfall, um, we're not going to see much rainfall sort of through those areas. Um, most likely it will be um, in the in the one to five millimeter range. But over the last few days, we have seen some areas where the falls have been actually a little bit heavier. So if, if a thunderstorm does get going, uh, it could produce up to 10 millimeters sort of through these areas uh, over the next 24 hours. And let's move into the Southwest Land Division, take a look at conditions this afternoon and for the rest of the week. And a, a special note about uh, the Bindoon fire uh, just sort of north of Perth because the firefighters there and authorities are still really keeping a, a close eye on that situation. 
Yes, there's a lot going on uh, around the fire this afternoon, uh, Belinda. So the trough that I mentioned uh, uh, over the Gascoigne is extending across um, across the Southwest Land Division as well. Uh, so there are a few things going on in the Southwest Land Division. Firstly, the very hot temperatures, the temperatures through the Central West, Lower West, and uh, the Central Weed Belt are in the high 30s to low 40s today, so very hot temperatures. We've seen a, a, a a windy easterly flow this morning and we've also now just issued a severe thunderstorm warning for parts of uh, the, the northern parts of the uh, the the southwest land division um and um thunderstorms are currently affecting the bindun fire and what happens during a thunderstorm uh, is the winds can be quite erratic so in it can blow in any direction not necessarily from the east or, or the west so that I imagine would be impacting um, impacting the the fires at the moment. We've also received reports of some small hail to the north of Perth, so some some uh, severe cells uh, that are currently affecting that area, and it should continue to move southwards. In terms of rainfall, um, again, it's going to be sporadic. Uh, generally, we're expecting about. Uh, um, less than two millimeters from these thunderstorms. But if we do see more frequent thunderstorm activity, rainfall could be in the five to 10 millimeters, potentially getting up to 15 millimeters uh, through parts of the uh, east, especially eastern parts of the central west, uh, the lower west, and uh, also parts of the central weed belt. And then the warnings for this afternoon, Ange. Um, so warning-wise, uh, we have got a few warnings out uh, and... Um, uh, so looking at um, the heatwave warning, we have got a severe heatwave warning for the Gascoigne, Lower West, Southwest, Great Southern and Central Weed Belt districts. Um, and uh, we have got a fire weather warning. So those ho very hot uh, temperatures, the windy conditions are causing severe fire dangers across the Burrup and uh, and uh, across the Burrup today and the Capes and then for the Burrup and Inchburton tomorrow. And I've mentioned the severe thunderstorm warning for parts of the Central West, Lower West, Central Weed Belt, Gascoigne. And we should be looking at a um, metro warning that has also just come out. And thank you for going through those details. 17 to 1. Michelle Stanley in the studio now with the rainfall figures. Yeah, looking at the 24 hours to 9 o'clock, uh, over 5 mils in the Kimberley. Charnley River had 26. Diggers Rest, 24. Drysdale River Station, 31. Elquestro, 33. Ellenbray, 19. Emma Gorge, 23. Fitzroy Crossing Aero had 25. Flora Valley, 5. Gibb River, 12. Columbaroo, 15. Kingston Rest, 38. Kununurra Checkpoint had 20. Leopold Downs 24, Liveringa Station 7, Marion Downs 17, Mount Barnett 28, Mount House Airstrip 19, Old Mornington Homestead had 9, Siddons Creek 11, Theda 12, Troughton Island 9, Truscott had 23, Wyndham Aero 15 and Yulmbu had 19. In the Pilbara, Marble Bar 23, I think that was their first rainfall in the town since April, so very welcome there. In the Gascoigne, hello to Mount Clare, they finally got 7 Mills. Tangadee had five and Ewan had five. In the interior, Warburton Airfield had six and Eucla had five. In the Southwest Land Division, just a couple in the Southern Coastal Region, Jacob 10 and Ongar up North six. And in the Great Southern, Narragin Aero got six. Pingley West got five, but Pingley got 47 mils, which is the biggest for the south of the state. ABC Radio, Fire Ban Information.
And as you've heard, due to the risk of fires, a total fire ban has been issued for today, Tuesday the 16th of January. It's for the Pilbara and the southwest and affects the local government areas of Caratha, Augusta, Margaret River and Bustleton. The fire bans are in place all day and you must not light, maintain or use a fire in the open air or carry out any activity that could start a fire, including lighting fires for cooking or camping or hot work such as grinding or welding. Remember, it's your responsibility to check with your local government if there's also a harvest and vehicle movement ban. At this stage, those vehicle movement bans have been imposed in the city of Bustleton and the Shire of Chittering. Um, That means you can't use off-road vehicles, even for agriculture or industry, but please check with your local government about the restrictions, the zones, any lifting of vehicle movement bans. For the total fire ban, there is a map of the affected areas at the Emergency WA website and more about the do's and don'ts during a total fire ban on the DFES website. But just repeating, there is a total fire ban today for Caratha, Augusta, Margaret River and Bustleton. And talking fires, there is still that watch and act warning for parts of Bambin, Bindoon, Coonabidgee, Jinjin, Leonard Brook, Mooliabini and Moonda in the shires of Jinjin and Chittering. Um, I've heard there may be a change coming, but at this stage we haven't received any formal update to this since the last update you would have received about an hour ago. This fire is contained, but it is not controlled. So you head to the Emergency WA and the ABC Emergency websites for more information on that. We will be back um, with any information if there is an escalation for this fire. But just repeating, a watch and act alert remains in place for parts of Bambin, Bindoon, Coonabidgee, Jinjin, Leonard Brook, Mulyabini, Moon and Moonda in the shires of Jinjin and Chittering. Thanks, Belle. Thank you for the details, Michelle. 14 to 1 here on the country on the ABC WA and, of course, on the ABC Listen app. Well, the tropical low that's swirling around the eastern edge of the Kimberley and circling the northwest corner of the NT is bringing some very welcome rain for the stations lucky enough to find themselves underneath one of those storms. It is great news for stations running cattle who are desperate for rain to get some pasture growth. But those with crops in the ground, well, it's a little more challenging. Mac Jarden is assistant manager at Lejeune Station, northeast of Kununurra. He's found himself in the unusual position of having to pump water off a sorghum crop rather than onto it. We're about to um, get another cell um, coming up from Lake Argyle here at the moment. So, yeah, in the next sort of half hour to an hour, we'll have another, well, probably hopefully an inch. Um, on the ground, so yeah, we didn't get much here last night. Only had thirty-five milliliter overnight at the house. So, and what about yesterday and the day prior? Did you get much then? Yeah, we've had um, we've had eighty mil here in the last forty-eight hours um, at the house, um, and then yeah, some falls um, a bit closer out to the coast. Uh, one night there, not before last, we had one hundred and five mil, um, which yeah makes things pretty damp. The cattle are obviously loving it. But I understand you've got some crops in at the moment as well. How are they faring? Yeah, they're going all right. They're um, pretty water indulged at the moment. Um, we've got a big pump um, here at the moment, just pumping water off our um, dry land sorghum, um, which will be used for our feedlot uh, later in the year, silage. So it's um, been running for yeah just over 24 hours here at the moment. And it yeah pumps off 100 megs a day. So um, yeah, if you break that down, it's yeah roughly just shy of 1,200 litres per second of water it'll pump off the crop. 
And Mac, am I right to say that you're a, a southern Queensland boy? How does it feel to be pumping water off a crop, not onto it? Yeah, it's it's different. Yeah, you don't um, you don't really see it very often. Do you reckon it'll be okay when this rain passes? It will be okay. Yeah, we just um, fingers crossed. The outlook should be another day of um, yeah heavy rainfall. Um, so we'll just play it by ear and keep the water pumping off. But um, yeah, after this. Rain band that comes through, we definitely need sort of a week, a bit of a dry weather, a shower or two here and there will be fine. But, um, yeah, especially for the cattle as well, they'll be doing it pretty tough during these parts of the time, yeah. Do you reckon that you'll get that week or so of dry weather? I'm looking at the radar now and it looks like it's sort of swirling around Catherine for the rest of the week. Do you reckon you'll be in for some storms off that? Yeah, I definitely reckon um, that'll be the case. We'll just have to uh, see how it goes. Yeah, definitely predicting showers and that after tomorrow onwards of an afternoon, 20 to 40 mil um, each day. So, yeah, at least it's not up around the two inches. Yeah, things should get back up on their feet. And what are the cattle doing? Are they okay? Yeah, they're going good. I've um, been checking them out the last few days. Um, They're all up on sand ridges and high ground. So, yeah, they're... um, pretty miserable this time of year just with the rain they're sort of sitting around having a gradual feed uh, when they can when the sun pops out but other than that yeah they do it pretty tough this time of year when um yeah these showers and heavy storms and that are sitting around yeah and it's been a pretty late start for the wet season with you guys out there has it it has alice yeah we've um yeah the 380 mil year to date um has only been sort of just in january as such so um, yeah, it's a pretty late late year, but um, especially for Lejeune that when all the low-pressure systems and the monsoons come through is normally late January, February, so we still probably have a fair bit more to come, I reckon. I'm thinking back to your last year's average, which I haven't checked that recently, but I do have the figure 700 drilled into my brain. You've still got a, a fair few inches to go to get up to that. Yeah, we've still got a fair few to get up to that, so... As I said, yeah, we've still got a lot to come. Um, February, I think, is the wettest time up here. So February, early March. So, yeah, we'll just have to um, play it by ear and see how we go. Assistant Manager of Lejeune Station, Mac Jarden, speaking to Alice Marshall. 10 to 1 here on the Country Hour. Michelle Stanley back in the studio with an update on the Bindoon fire. Yeah, I said there would be, would be back if there was any escalation and there has been. So there is now a bushfire emergency warning in place. This is for a different area. So take a listen to the areas. It's bounded by Moondar Drive, Ashworth Road and Mulliabini Road in parts of Moondar and Gingenup in the Shire of Gingin. So in that area, you are in danger and you need to act immediately. There is a threat to lives and homes. And the reason this alert level has been upgraded is because of some lightning strikes in the area. And we heard about that increased fire activity and that weather. So for people on Peterson Rise, it's too late to leave and leaving now will put you in danger. So you need to shelter in your home. Uh, For people who are north of Peterson Rise, if the way is clear, leave now for a safer place. Do not wait and see. Um, So the other areas of that fire, there is still the Watch and Act in place for Bambin, Bindoon, Coonabidgee, Jinjin, Leonardbrook, Mulliabini and Moondar in the shires of Jinjin and Chittering. But there is now also an emergency warning in place. Again, that's for people bounded by Moondar Drive, Ashworth Road and Mulliabini.
Beanie in parts of Moondar and Ginger Nup. Thanks, Belle. Thank you for the update, Michelle. Eight to one. We'll get to the markets. Off to Mushay for the results of the sheep market shortly. But at this time of year, during the summer months, Plenty of you are making your way around the country with a caravan in tow. And a recent survey by the National Heavy Vehicle Regulator has shown that there are still many caravanners with a lack of understanding about sharing the road with trucks. Brooke Nindorf has the story. The NHVR has been running a campaign of ads over the last 12 months encouraging all road users to give trucks space. And it included a video from comedian Jimmy Reese. By law, truck drivers have to take rest breaks and park in truck parking to do so. Where do caravanners park? In the truck rest stops. Correct. Where should they park? Anywhere else. Caravanners, you need to leave truck rest stops free for truck drivers. Truck drivers need to use dedicated stops to manage their fatigue hours. So caravanners, you need to pre-plan and find a designated caravan stop or caravan park to pull up. But it seems the message is still not getting across, with the recent survey showing 60% of caravanners parked in truck-specific rest areas, with a majority of them knowing they're not meant to. Steve Smith is the Executive Director of Corporate Affairs with the NHVR and says they're constantly having to share the message about sharing the road. Particularly this time of year and all holidays indeed, a lot of families like to hitch up the caravan and off they go to have you know, a lovely time together with the families. But we find invariably year on, year in, year out, a lot of people aren't understanding about truck-specific rest stops. So we, we recently conducted a survey of 1,000 drivers um, and it reveals 60% of caravanners have parked in truck-specific rest areas before and a high number of them continue to do so. But the alarming factor out of that was 66% of the people surveyed knew that they shouldn't be parking in those areas but they weren't sure why. The men and women that drive our heavy vehicles, their fatigue, their work and their rest hours are regulated. They have to have certain breaks at certain times. They can't do extra hours. And a lot of them, for instance, like if you're doing a trip, I'll just uh, I'll say from Perth to, to Melbourne, for instance, it's not a you pack up in the morning and you get there in the afternoon. It's a lot longer than that. And given that their hours need to are regulated, they need to have rest and uh, work hours differentiated, they, they plan their trip on truck-specific parking bays where they can manage their fatigue, get their sleep they need, get their time off. And time after time, um, we see a number of these truck-specific parking areas filled up with caravans parked because they haven't planned their trip appropriately. What's classified as a truck-specific rest area? What makes that stand out? Look, you'll, you'll see there, there's, the signage is up there. It's truck-specific parking bay areas. You, you invariably find them as you're driving between you know, town to town. There could always be more, don't get me wrong, but um, they're there positioned and they've worked out as to areas where you know, trucks might need to stop for fatigue breaks invariably. And they're listed as truck-specific only. So it's just an area off the side of the road that has parking bays in it that trucks can utilise, pull up for the evening or the afternoon if, if that's the time they need to stop jump into their cab because remember most of these people this their truck and their cab is their home for four and five maybe six days a week so it gives them the ability to be able to plan their their trip they know where these places are they expect to turn up there and be able to get a park have a have good sleep and head off on the road and People look at a go trucks parking area. They don't mean they don't understand, and, and a little bit more research on their behalf would help here. And that's what we're trying to, to help them be aware of. The other thing we found during there was during the uh, the survey was that people will be afraid to, if they're unsure, jump on the UHF radio. And a lot of a lot of caravanning setups these days and vehicles have a UHF radio. Pick 
the radio up, jump on the channel UHF 40 and have a chat to the truck drivers in the area. I mean, they'll help you out and say, not that this truck's specific only, mate, but you can, you know, another 15 kilometres up the road, there's a uh, there's a BP service station that's you know, got some facility at the back you might be able to use, or you're not far from the next town, etc. So don't be afraid to ask the question to our drivers out there. They're always willing to help. Um, in fact, you know, it, it helps them by helping you. Yeah, and that's not just about rest stops either. It could be, you know... It, We've all done it before. We've all got to be frustrated behind a heavy vehicle and wanting to overtake it. But use your radio to check with the driver that's in front of you and, um, and ask the question. I mean, he'll go, look, there's a, there might be a nice straight coming up or you're clear at the moment, mate, away you go, or just hold back, there's some traffic coming. The more you can communicate with the heavy vehicle drivers out there, you'll find they're friendly. They want to help you because they understand by helping you that their, their job is, uh, is going to be done safer and uh and they can get along with their business, and everybody wins out of having that conversation, that that one-on-one chatting with each other. Handy hints from Steve Smith from the National Heavy Vehicle Regulator. Three minutes to one, and it is off to Mouche now for the results of today's sheep sale, and there's been increased interest from Eastern States buyers. Terry Birkin was at the sale today. What were the numbers like today, Terry? Hi, Belinda. Stock numbers were evenly divided between sheep and lambs with approximately 4,300 in each category today. The buying field was again crowded with a few interested onlookers and some from as far as the eastern states. Lamb showing condition gained $10 a head while mutton also lifted 4 to $5 a head. Very light tail end sheep were difficult to sell, however crossbred store lambs with good frames sold from $45 to $87 while merino store lambs with potential averaged $60 and ranged from $22 to $84 a head. Light lambs sold from $60 to $110, while trade lambs returned $88 to $142, and heavy lambs realising $152 a head. Crossbred hoggets with condition ranged from $38 to $67, while the best merino ewe hoggets made up to $52, and the best weathers reached a top of $60 a head. Bony ewes returned $10 to $29, medium ewes were selling from $16 to $38, and heavy ewes maxed out at $51 a head. Most mature rams are making $5 to $55, with the exception of one very good pen reaching $95 for breeding. This has been Terry Birkin for MLA's National Livestock Reporting Service. Terry, thanks for going through the details. A total of 8,705 sheep and lambs yarded today, down from last week by 353. But interesting to note about those eastern states buyers. Um, And we might follow up on that tomorrow, make a few calls and see who is snooping around the markets and looking for some WA sheep. Uh, News isn't far away, about 30 seconds or so. Hello, I'm Stephanie Smale. Join me for The World Today. Foreign Minister Penny Wong starts her trip to the Middle East. We'll look at what she's trying to achieve as the deadly Israel-Gaza war drags on. Housing emergency, far north Queensland flood victims still sleeping in tents and on floors a month after the deluge. And to move seats or not to move seats? That's the question on the lips of tennis fans about a controversial rule change at the Australian Open. And just a reminder, there's been an upgrade to an area of that Bindoon fire. It's now at an emergency warning level for parts of Moondar and Jinjin up in the Shire of Jinjin. Keep listening to ABC Radio this afternoon. There'll be more detail for you on that warning upgrade. Good to talk to you today. It's time for the news. It is one o'clock. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.